Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. So a lot of our focus was on actually on dealing with, with trying to connect development imperatives, which would be around urban poverty, around gender issues, around democracy, around climate change, around planning approaches, etc., etc., and funding those activities. I think it's becoming easier to talk about it, and even our partners rejected this notion, and many of them are actually seeing the fruit of others and, and the, the fact of the freedom that has come with organizations that are more or financially more self-reliant. I think more organizations are going to go this way. I do see some problems. We get asked those all the time. My own board asks them all the time. So how are you going to ensure that this doesn't run away and just become business? And, and, and how are you going to prevent exploitation? I think these are very, very important governance questions. I'm very pleased today to introduce Larry English. Larry is CEO of Real, or Real Equity for All, formerly known as Homeless International, a UK-based international development organisation that is dedicated to alleviating housing conditions in informal settlements across the developing world. In the last five years, Real's annual budget to accelerate sustainable housing development in Africa and Asia has increased tenfold to approximately £20 million, and they've been able to increase the number of households helped from 1,000 to 20,000 over that time. Larry has overseen Reel's transformation into a social enterprise, which today operates in 20 countries through 26 entrepreneurial and inspiring community organizations. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great honor to talk to you and uh, hear your journey. good place maybe to start would be to tell us a little bit about your own personal journey and how you came to uh, Homeless International. Okay, I'm a, a trained as an architect and urban designer, planner, uh, South African. I grew up with uh, living in a world where there was rich and poor living uh, in very close proximity. Uh, one couldn't live, I, you know, as an adult, I, uh, my, my practice that I ran was in Durban, South Africa. And so we, um, uh, you know, one could get to work without driving through a slum uh, or an informal settlement, as technically it's called. Um, and uh, since I, you know, from being a student, um, actually from being a from being a child, I've always wanted to be an architect, and I've always wanted to. Uh, I always thought that, um, and then when I studied architecture, I realised the role that that uh, place making. Um, that the physical part of communities could can change people's lives, and obviously practice only reinforced that. So I found myself in a situation where um, we were doing work for government, we were doing work for private sector, we were doing things like waterfronts and uh, replanning, replanning of, of, of urban areas post-apartheid. Um, but at the same time, I had um, started. Uh, I'd been working with um, with communities directly, mostly um, my part time. Part time. Um, um, partly that comes from my own upbringing and religious uh, background. Um, that you know, you know, you 
can't see a problem not doing something about it. So I was working at the same time as running my own practice. I was also working on Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings, and over the weekends, uh, directly with communities, helping to build, uh, help them build houses, plan with houses. And um, these are people living in shacks. And that work uh, eventually became subsumed into Habitat for Humanity. So, so I found myself... Um, uh, part of a, an international organization and chairing the uh, Habitat for Humanity in South Africa and then being on the international board and then realizing uh, that um, the, the, the skills that I developed in South Africa um, had global relevance and Habitat for Humanity prompted really being on the board and realizing what the, the scale of the problem was and the opportunity presented to them. I actually then moved from I sold my practice and uh, moved into the third sector. The, uh, uh, but because my background, Fugel, you, uh, you, you need to. Uh, so I'm just going to stop you. You just you need to tell me when I I, I can blurb, I can talk, I, forever. <laughs> so you, you you just interrupt me whenever you want to. Um, I uh, I had, the work that I'd been doing in South Africa included uh, things like gated communities and golf course estates and. Um, and I'd seen how land uh, in cities appreciated um, just by the way it was planned, the way it was designed, the way it, it dealt with the needs of people, uh, the way it dealt with their security needs, uh, particularly in countries like South Africa, Brazil, India, where you have uh, where you have people that are living in places where um, there's a lot of crime. Security is a big issue. And the people who are most affected by it are actually the poor, not the wealthy. But what I had seen was uh, land values um, of projects that we were dealing with. We would uh, increase sometimes 100 times, 200, 300 times the value of the initial inputs. And I thought that, imagine if, uh, if um, poor communities could be built the same way. Um, if we could capture the social capital, the, the sort of a sense of community that exists in informal settlements, the, 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 the sense of uh, co-creation, co sometimes codependency, but the ability to work together, which you wouldn't find in the suburbs, if we could capture that. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, so, so, so what I realized was that what I had to offer um, the uh, the developing world was, uh, particularly in urban areas, was how do we capture uh, land market, you know, increase in value of land markets when you do different things to, to land in, in, in urban areas, and increase in value, how could we actually tap that value so that the poor could share in that value in the city and make a city equitable. And so I started that in a project in Durban, it's in Bailey, and we saw a 25,000 rand house increase in value by to 250,000 within two years. And that's actually in a Harvard business case study. Um, and then I uh, did the same in Nigeria. And, uh, and then uh, how I came to Homeless International was uh, I realized that what we were doing was needed a very small team of people who could work with other uh, uh, could work with uh, people in countries, um, 
but it needed to be a lot smaller. You needed to work with people who really knew something about real estate, really knew about um, uh, uh, how how to do that creatively, how to do, do that with communities, with, with people, uh, how to do that uh, efficiently and quickly, how to actually maximize the yield of land. Um, and, um, and then also people who understood how you finance that. Um, and, and so when I came to Homeless International, um, they had some existing programs um, running, but what we, what, what, I suppose my, my um, uh, what I saw opportunity to do, it was a much, much smaller organization, um, was the opportunity to work with partners in countries to uh, establish uh, uh, very effective um, non-profit organizations that could actually make profit and redeploy that profit, one, to sustain themselves, but also then to um, share that um, that increased value with, with the communities, participating communities. And um, and that has seen our work grow tremendously. Um, you know, once, once people realize that um, um, people on the ground are you know, an individual family actually own a house that else increases in value. All their investment is, is not, um, uh, you know, you can you can you can improve a house in a in a slum, but the slum will bring it its value down because it's it's a great, you know, it might have great might have uh, significant construction value, but it has no market value because the surrounding area actually brings its value down. So. Working with communities and building whole communities is very important because the value of your house is, depends on the value of the house next door, depends on the behaviours of the house, the community in which you live. And so, we tend to have an approach which is which is um, sort of holistic, but building uh, 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 estates, and building, uh, doing housing in a way where you're always thinking about the value that it creates and the value then that accrues to. An family, um, which allows them to become, you know, uh, more secure financially, but also, you know, to be able to provide some collateral against which they can borrow and you know, send kids to university or start a business or do something like that. So, okay, that's very interesting. And what what kind of scale of activity have you uh, had? I mean, how how do you measure, you know, what Homeless International has done in the last few years? What Homeless International has done is, I mean, it, I think we, um, what existed before I arrived, and so therefore I can take no credit for it, is um, the organization focused on supporting uh, organizations around the world that were mobilizing slum dwellers. That means they were organizing slum dwellers into uh, representative groups. Um, you know, so there are, uh, and I'm a, I come from a planning background and have had um, problems, have had difficulties in the past where you, you know, you, there's a you know, there's a place called Inanda in Durban where you had I, I don't know estimated about six hundred thousand people living there and you've you've got to um, uh, you've the area needs to be replanned. Well, you know, who do you speak to? Who represents all these people? It could be hundreds of different groups, hundreds of different factions. So unless communities that are living in slums are organised, um, uh, it's very difficult for outside agencies, 
you know, responsible for water, sanitation, planning, etc., etc., to actually work with those communities because to improve them requires some kind of coherence, some kind of collaborative effort. And so Homeless International have focused for about 19 years on, um, on building, um, working with organizations around the world, uh, in Africa, Africa and Asia mainly, um, working with uh, slum dweller groups like Slum Dwellers International and, and uh, uh, Asian Coalition for Housing Rights, and um, but essentially with working with uh, people in country, organizing people in slums, you organize them in slums and federate them in, 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 uh, at a city level, federate them at a national level, so you actually eventually have um, uh, a group of organized people of which you know their names, you know the uh, the uh, you have you have kind of data. Uh, the data is collected by the by the organizers around you know how many people live here, how many men and women, what do you earn, what are your vulnerabilities, what are your priorities, all these different all this kind of information is is actually held in. And if I had to take the partners that we support, we probably have about three and a half million people that are. Um, uh, are um, uh, exist in these groups, but taking a, a group uh, from uh, you know a group that is organized. Sorry, and one of the things I missed was the organizing principle. Is you know people organize often uh, they can organize out of a crisis. You know, someone might say you might be living there, but we're going to evict you and move you somewhere else. So suddenly there's the the need to work together. Um, so solidarity can be built through crisis, um, but it, but mostly the methodology used amongst our partners is um, to start savings groups and to, to undertake slum-wide um, enumeration exercises. That means they actually go, they use GPS mapping for using Google Maps and GPS each person's house or shack. And from that, actually, able to establish a map, and then from that map, we're able to, you know, to give families uh, uh, to locate families, but then also to to produce data associated with those family census data. So that's uh, what we call mapping and enumeration. And these exercises are very useful to bringing communities together. And uh, uh, so that work was what Homeless International did for. Um, for, and continues to do, our organization continues to support that. But the, the, the challenge was, well, how do, you, how do you then service that, that, um, that uh, community? How do you, you know, so let's say 10,000 people or 1,000 people have actually uh, organized themselves. How do, you, how do you start working to replan the area or provide water and sanitation? Or housing, or move them to a new area. You know, perhaps they're all living in a floodplain, or under electric, you know, transmission lines. Um, so, uh, so what we needed to do, the challenge was, how do you move? How do you build an? How do you build an organisation that actually services that need? And I suppose our what we've what we've realised is that um, there's a. Uh, uh, you might, if you know the history of sort of urban development or housing, you'll know that for about in, in 1980, the World Bank, and uh, really largely led by the World Bank, decided that um, housing was a private good, and so therefore needed to be provided by the private sector. And so up to that stage, um, governments around the world were quite heavily involved in urban planning, 
you know, expanding the cities, providing for new, uh, you know, for people urbanizing. Um, uh, they would, they would, you know, uh, procure land and subdivide it and provide lots of people coming in. But post nineteen eighty, um, World Bank funding was withdrawn from from um, the prevailing. Um, wisdom at the time suggested that uh, the private sector should be providing housing and that government really should play an enabling role. Well, the, the consequence of all of that uh, is that um, local governments around the world, um, particularly developing countries, um, housing departments started getting money from the World Bank. Uh, the local governments who are dependent on those funds to plan new areas and to put infrastructure in, you know, eventually atrophied. And uh, and uh, and so today you actually find that local governments in developing countries, even in some of the major cities, are pretty dysfunctional and under-resourced. So that has happened at the same time as as and over the last thirty years, as urbanisation has peaked. You know, and so you've had this rush into cities. So now we're in the city, and and all along the private sector never really came to the party. So for the private sector, this was too risky. Yeah, these are, this is not a market that people understand, and so neither government nor the private sector, and I'm being very um, general, I'm generalising here, um, are able to provide for the poor. One, the private sector don't understand the market, they don't understand the, the vulnerabilities of poor, they don't understand how they earn their incomes, they don't they don't have payrolls, etc. etc. And generally, the private sector only really get involved in low cost housing when the government is willing to guarantee it or there's some kind of funding for it. Uh, governments long long ago stopped providing housing. So what we have is a huge market between, you know, a billion, one point four, about almost 1.4 billion people now and, uh, and provisions. So there's a, a huge market there. So when you talk about scale, so our focus has been building social enterprises, or what we call community development enterprises, to bridge that gap. Organizations that understand the market, that understand people living in slums, um, that have the trust of, of those people, um, uh, can organize them in hundreds, and then building institutions then that are able to uh, plan and implement um, housing projects, water sanitation projects, um, and finance them. Finance not just the project, but finance the end user that wants to then uh, buy that house or buy that water and sanitation product. So, so that's really the scale. Um, to 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 answer your question um, um, about the scale, um, we were we were building about six hundred. We we and when I say we, I mean us and our partners. We uh, all our partners are independent of us, so they become independent organisations. Um, we were building about 600 um, units a year, um, and this year we will do about 20,000 units. Um, now, that doesn't sound great in terms of the, the deficit, but it, when you think that people are building, the, are building these houses in a sustainable way, once you get to about 500 housing units a year, as an organization, you can break even financially. Once you get to about a thousand units a year, you can you can uh, you start earning surpluses. 
which means that you can actually go and buy land and you can actually start to engage in the market. Um, our scale of our program has gone from about um, six million pounds to about we have about committed funds of about a hundred million pounds now. Wow, uh, that's, that's that's quite a growth. So, but when you're doing housing, water, and sanitation, these are capital projects. So, when you compare the cost of mosquito net to what we're doing, you know, it's a, it's, it's not, it's not comparable. It's apples and pears kind of things. But, but if you think that that um, we, um, depending on who you work with, and we we we're working with some academics at the moment, um, economists to to assess it for ourselves, but. Um, when you think of uh, when you build a house, um, the the downside and upside value chains, uh, the, the additional value that it creates is um, if you if you read McKinsey said about twelve times. So for every every dollar you invest, you create twelve dollars of of opportunity. Um, we're we're trying to verify that. We've heard in in, in India about eight times. In, in Philippines about 16 times so so when you think of the fact that you're going to redeploy these funds um, and that because of the property market um, you're adding value all the time our aim at the moment we uh, we're working on a model which which enables an organization to move from to self uh, to sustainability and self-reliance within the three to five year period um, and so, essentially, our scale-up approach is, um, is 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 how do these organisations scale up? Not how do we produce more housing, but how do we produce more organisations that produce more housing? And as the private sector, you know, obviously, as the organisations um, uh, scale up, and so they get to to uh, the the thousands of houses a year, um, suddenly uh, the scales of economy of scale is such that um, that banks become interested that uh, other private investors um, become interested and that's really our challenge now our challenge is if you think of a if you think of a, a canal system our challenge is to ensure that the canals remain full of water which means that uh, now you might be able to secure funds locally to ensure that your your uh, your, your pipeline is is pump primed financially but uh, to keep your projects going, you know, because obviously if you stop, then you have people that are, you know, lots of people that are working that, that need to be paid, that, you know, but there's no production. So you've got to keep the thing, um, you've got to keep the pipelines um, uh, moving. So to increase, so our, our role in Homes, here in Homes International is, is we, we're building a, a, a fund which would be, would serve as that kind of, Reservoir at the top of the hill. That if you know if you can't find funding locally, we can ensure that you that um, that there's funds available. And so, the the challenge ahead of us is proving is proving this market, proving the returns on on investment, and then expanding uh, the number of um, uh, of uh, investors. That's the challenge. Um, on the ground, we find that. Um, uh, we we started off in 2010. We had three partners that were employing uh, this methodology or approach, this sort of enterprise approach. Um, we now have 15. 
Um, by 2018, we should have about 50. Um, so, and obviously they can expand in country as well. But um, um, so the so scale will be essentially. We feel that uh, without demeaning it, is it's it's a kind of a, a sort of a Starbucks approach to housing. <laughs> you know, once you've got an organisation that can actually uh, provide land, housing, and basic infrastructure. That means basic water and basic sanitation, and they can do that sustainably. Um, uh, then that institution or that little organization can be replicated. And uh, the only thing, yeah, and, and, and that's really, that's for us sitting in the UK, that's our challenge. Our challenge is how do you expand the number of these partners. For partners on the ground, it's, it's how do they expand their, um, uh, their rate of delivery. Can you tell me a little bit about the financial side of it? I mean, I mean, I've read a little bit about the background and you were talking about how you've been funded before and how you've over time tried to, I guess, move away from a more grant model. And, you know, I mentioned VPF. Can you tell me a little bit about how you, the organization has changed and how its funding has changed over time? Okay, let me, let me be very upfront. We, we, a lot of our work, um, um, we are still very much grant funded. Um, uh, what has changed is the way we funded and the scale of our funding. Um, so in the beginning, um, you know, there's aid agencies around the world are increasingly moving toward more sustainable models of delivery. We just happen to be ahead of that curve. And so I need to credit, you know, the Swedish government, CEDA and, and DFID, the British government, who've, um, uh, who have been instrumental. You know, this is not a... This is often this sort of social enterprise discussion is about a single person. Well, it could, I can tell you now, it's not about. I think individuals are important. Um, I won't be so humble as to say that ideas aren't important, but I think putting those ideas into practice requires a whole range of people who think in a similar ways. And we've been fortunate that we've had people in in, in Diffid and in and in, in, in Swedish Cedar that have. Um, seen what we're doing, uh, seen what the partners are doing, believed in it, and actually provided further funding. Our challenge in moving into private sector is quite minimal at the moment. Um, uh, so th th I just need to say that because that's, those are the facts. Um, our challenge is moving to the private sector. Uh, what we found is moving in this direction, you weren't really collecting all the data. Uh, you weren't, um, you know, a lot of the systems that we developed were rudimentary systems that worked for ourselves but certainly wouldn't work in the, in the international world of finance. So so I'll start at the beginning. So we've got a lot of work to do in terms of building and tightening systems. Um, and those systems are at every level. You know, it's how a project, you know, how you how do you how do how do we select partners in, in different countries, how do uh, how do they select projects, how do beneficiaries get selected, how do you procure you know, your, your materials, how do you procure professional services, how do people, you know, how do you, uh, 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 when you start working with government, how do you ensure this, you know, that, the, that the, there's no corruption, all these different things are, are systems that we've got to um, work on. So that's sort of the technical side, there's a huge technical challenge because you will know that, um, uh, you may know that, you know, if you look at where mafia operates, you know, whatever becomes a mafia tends to be around construction, around um, uh, 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 around sort of 
government contracts like refuse collection, etc., etc. These are the kinds of land uh, that is owned by government. You know, the real estate sector has become uh, a way of laundering, uh, you know, Somali pirate money and, and, and drug money. It's it's a, so so when you're seeking private sector investment at the lower end where we're at, which is the bottom forty percent of the pyramid. Um, uh, you know, you've got to build very strong systems. So we have huge challenges there, but we have great people working with us. But if you had to ask me, if I have to answer your question around the challenges, um, uh, I think it's moving from a, it, it was like changing a religion. Um, uh, it was, you believe certain things are right and wrong, and now someone is telling you that that's not the way to think. That that is what you think is right is not really right, and what you think is wrong is not really wrong. Can you give me maybe an example of where you started out? If you just maybe just simplify how you were okay. fu funded before you went on this project, just maybe how things worked simply, you know, in terms of your finances and just maybe where you are today. And then we can talk about that journey. But just kind of give a, a kind of slightly synoptic kind of overview, so I get a, a sense of it, Jim. Okay. Well. Most of our funding was distributive. So basically, we're an agency in the UK that has identified unique needs and, and, and unique organizations in developing countries where there's a, a need which aligns with the development priority or imperative of, of either comic relief or, or a develop, you know, DFID or a big lottery or um, you know other agencies and and our organisation by the way is was, is rooted in the social housing sector so we would also go to housing associations in the UK who would identify with some of those causes but the idea was essentially we are a wealthy country and uh, because we are wealthy there is an imperative upon us to distribute that wealth. And I'm not contesting that. It's a particular worldview. And a lot of aid is based on that, you know, that out of the wealth of Britain, we will distribute around the world to those countries in need. And I think that's great for our, our, our national conscience uh, that we're engaged in that. Um, but when you're distributing money and there's no need for it to come back to you, um, you it doesn't require certain disciplines. It requires a very... You know, not to say that the money is just wasted. I'm not saying that at all. Is that it? It you would be. Uh, it would be done on a program that uh, a lot of our money was put in programs, and then it'd be evaluated as to whether the impact is being achieved, etc., etc. And that's largely still how it works. Um, the difference f for us is that we are uh, essentially an organisation that was started not just not to focus on the symptoms of poverty, urban poverty, you know. There was clearly a housing focus when we started, you know. But housing doesn't get funded, you see. So um, uh, we call it the H word. You know, people don't believe it's a private good. When you build a house, it's for an individual family. When you build a railroad, it's for everybody. You know, that's the difference, essentially. When you do water and sanitation, supposedly it's for everybody. When you do a house, it's for an individual. So if you're an aid agency, you don't want to put your money into things that, in, that benefit individuals. What you want to do is put your money into things which benefit the maximum amount of people. So, you know, boreholes, uh, public toilets, roads, etc., etc. So, so that has placed that placed a dilemma on us. So, a lot of our our focus was actually on dealing with with um, um, 
trying to connect development imperatives, which would be around urban poverty, around gender issues, around uh, democracy, around uh, you know climate change, around uh, uh, you know building um, you know participatory planning approaches, etc., etc., uh, and, and funding those activities, but not necessarily investing in. In, the, in, in a land market, you know, in, in actually building an organization that can finance itself. So one of the challenges we had was in India, where India, you know, working in a city like Mumbai, and I hope they never get to hear this, but <laughs> <laughs> so this is a city with more billion, more, more millionaires than any other city, you know, it's got Bollywood, but here you are working with the people at the other end, and, um, and you're working with an organization that is dealing with, you know, the housing problem, uh, uh, housing or slums are like a scab, you know, they're, they're like a, a surface wound or uh, a sore that is, so that's a physical manifestation of a whole range of underlying problems, diseases, and those diseases can be how land is owned and distributed, whether certain ethnic groups can get uh, access to it, whether people actually care for the poor, where they want them to return to the rural areas from which they supposedly came, etc., etc. There's a whole range of reasons. A lack of access to finance, inability to, to you know, to having regulations that make the technologies too expensive to use, etc., etc. There's a whole range of reasons why slums exist. And so we were working, but a lot of that has to do with our regulatory. A lot of the, a lot of the approaches to changing these underlying uh, contributing factors or determinants of why people are homeless um, take years to deal with. And when you're working as a UK organization in a country, um, uh, working through a partner, you know, and you have to say, well, we're trying to get to this, this nirvana, this state where the poor now don't have any obstacles to overcome. They can all access housing. Everything is equal. You know, access is equal to all. Um, when do you get to that point? And, you know, in, in a sense, the, the, the approach we had was very much trying to change that, um, trying to, to help an organization change the context in which it was operating and deal with these issues. And I felt in India, knowing that sentiments in the UK um, you know, people began asking the questions, why are you funding in the UK? Why, you know, we're losing jobs. India's economy is booming. Why don't they deal with themselves, etc.? And a lot of those things, a lot of those issues became very difficult to deal with. And so when we, when we had the conversation with our partners and asked them, well, how long would it take to change all of this? Um, the answer was, well, we don't know. You know, so how do you sustain a program which is advocating for change? Where the change might take place in 25, 50, 100 years. You know? uh, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the causes of poverty in, in, in India are deep rooted. They're deep rooted in cultural culture and the way the society is structured and goes back in, you know, millennia. Um, so, how do we deal with that from the UK? And how can how do we sustain sourcing funds in this country? To help that advocacy to continue, so that was one of the dilemmas that we faced: is that we needed to change from being a distributive to being a um, to 
where we were investing in something that developed and actually um, uh, no longer required us, no longer needed us. Um, so working with our partners, that was the big change, was how do we make our partners sustainable so that this adv advocacy work can continue as long as it needs to um, and be uh, resourced locally rather than resourced, you know, or be dependent on, um, on local, uh, on international aid. And so I suppose it was like moving from a situation where we were funding pot plants <laughs> which had to be watered from a host pipe connected to the UK to, to a situation where we needed to take that plant out of the uh, out of the pot plant and plant it into the soil so that it could actually find its own groundwater. And, uh, and one of the unique advantages that we had, you know, um, was that we were working within the property, the infrastructure, uh, the land market. And and there were ways where we could create value that would allow an organization to become financially independent. And so there was a real shift in, we haven't stopped anything we're doing, uh, we, we, we still continue to do that, but about 90% of our work now is actually building organizations that will be around in 50 to 100 years from now. That's really Right, very far-sighted, uh, inevitably, not, not just in terms of time, but I suppose in, in terms of the model that you, you're operating with. And, and you mentioned that this is a, a, a very different worldview, in a sense, from the one that you were operating in before. Can you characterize maybe a little bit the difference in how you see things? Well, I think, I think what happened was, you, you, uh, you can hear from my accent, I'm from, from South Africa. So for me, I did all my work in Africa and the Middle East, and then I come to the UK. And the UK had always been that other, you know, it had always been the source of some of the, the financial support we were getting. And, uh, and so now I was on the other side. So, so uh, in some ways, the role that we were playing uh, was that of, and I don't mean to demean international aid, but essentially we were um, fundraisers, we were grant procurers. We could, uh, because of the relationship we had with partners in the, in the developing south, we were able to um, identify their needs and then identify donors that would support it. Essentially, we would be that kind of e-harmony between um, need and, 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 and supply uh, financially. Um, what we had to do was um, uh, the question that we asked ourselves was, what do you do in the – so now we have a set of partners out there that are actually going to start building houses in, and, and provide water and sanitation in increasing scale. Um, and we were going to support them to build a self-sustaining organization. And so the, the shift one was technical, how you can help to build, help to build those organizations, uh, what, what kind of skill sets are now required to actually build a self-sustaining or an enterprise as opposed to an NGO, which is really like a distribution center. Um, how do you, uh, so what technical skills are going to be required to build organizations? What, what technical skills are required to actually procure finance in increasing amounts? Um, um, uh, uh, what role can you play? What, what can you do in the UK that you can't do in, in, in say, Kenya? So in Kenya you can build the houses. In Kenya you can 
build the technical and the project management skills, and that's where those are needed. So what do you do in, in, in the UK? Well, the UK is a great source of um, uh, repository of knowledge um, around housing and financing housing. Um, uh, it's one of the countries in the world, apart from where, where social housing is privately financed to the tune of about 85%. Um, so 80, 85% of housing in this country provided social housing is, is privately financed. So there's a, a range of expertise here that we've drawn on. Um, uh, house, funding is cheaper in this country and always will be. So, um, so you can source the cheapest sources of finance in this country. Um, uh, and so I suppose what, we've, what we started looking at is rather looking at uh, that we the North that, that have the resources and the South that need the resources and, uh, and, and it's sort of a North-South uh, relationship between uh, people who have money and those who don't. Ours became more of a, a, a symbiotic relationship of what can they do that we're dependent on to drive um, sort of our mission and what can we do for them that helps to drive their mission and so it became much more symbiotic and so we've moved to uh, so we needed to become the challenge for us is we needed to become uh, a lot more savvy around um, uh, the financial and, 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 and technical skills, built environment skills around real estate development, land markets, finance markets Etc. Etc. I mean, and I, if you want me, I can send you a whole uh, model of of, 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 of of the kind of competencies that are required at our level and also at the level of a partner. Um, so the challenge for us is we move from a from a kind of a generic, um, although urban focused, um, uh, aid agency to one which was now actually focused on the building of organizations that build houses. And that's really our strap line. We build organizations that build houses. And um, and then the shift has been, you know, moving from, the, you know, people who are very much, you know, uh, which had a generic skill set of, 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 of how does international aid work, how do aid agencies work, how do you, you know, the, the kind of, what we call dev speak, development speak, of how do you actually apply for grants? How do you actually apply with it with using the right terminology, um, uh, which is a which is a, a, a skill set if people don't understand it. I mean, if, if if you're getting if you've got opportunity for ten grants and there are you know five hundred applicants, um, if you if you commit a, if you have a spelling mistake, if you use the wrong terminology, those could be reasons for not funding you. So it's a very competitive game. But we had to move from that to more of a um, uh, to build our technical capabilities, and that's sort of what we've done. We also the other things that changed was the language around those two. So moving from a language of of uh, international development or aid to one of um, uh, building of of social enterprise of um, uh, uh, we, you know, we've had to have some, we had to have some sort of transition language. We didn't refer to profit. We used the word surplus. We uh, we didn't do, refer to a word loan. We used the word a returnable fund. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, we, the challenge was, and then there, there, there are a lot of challenges. People get into the third sector or into the, you know, they go off and do a masters 
um, they're pretty bright people to start with to go and do a master's in Manchester or SOAS or, or uh, you know, Durham or whatever and, and, and you know, are now, uh, you know, their career, they've got the right skills to work in international aid and suddenly they find themselves working for an organization that's now talking about return on investment, um, uh, you know, investment yields and uh, you know a whole range i don't want to get into all the technical language but essentially it's a different kind of language you know some people that you talk to or you know we used to we never even used to use the word beneficiary we would never refer to someone using a passive word term like beneficiary because it's so we used to use the word you know uh, communities and we still use the word communities but sometimes we'll use the word clients um so uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but there's uh, the, the, the changing of religion part was um, when we started talking about charging interest on loans, um, people said, well, how can we charge interest? How could people that are so poor repay? You know, uh, and, and our partners were challenged with having to, I suppose the scenario could be likened to uh, having to choose communities that would work, you know, uh, that would be able to pay. You know, it's, it's like starting a, a store, a shop, and selling all your products at discount. And you know that you're not going to last a week if you do that. So you're now going to start charging for some of them, and, uh, and that means that um, some people won't be able to afford what you're charging, which means you start having to exclude. And it's a bit like a doctor walking into a, a hall full of people that have just been wheeled in from a, from a bomb blast. And they've got to choose the people that have the best chance of survival. You know, it's that kind of choice. There are millions of people that are poor, but when you're wanting to build an organization that's sustainable, you've got to now make a choice as to who do you serve. And so that choice is, 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 is a tension between need and ability to repay. And... Uh, and uh, I suppose the change has been we don't see Homeless International no longer sees itself as the welfare agency. We build welfare agencies. So the decision around welfare and how poor people go and how they serve the poorest is a, is a decision that our partners make in country. We don't make that decision for them. So, so all of those kinds of um, are, are real shifts, you know. That's very interesting because it's... Uh... I guess it's something that more traditional type, I guess, grant funded organizations may have to make or may may well be interested in making a journey that others will be doing. Can you give me a sense of how do you do this? I mean, this this is a major cultural shift. It's a, a very different way of looking at things. So w what are two or three things that you have learned on this journey you think are important in order to make this journey? I think... I think I, I sometimes look back and just think, you know, I've been with Homeless International for six and a half years now, and, um, and I sometimes wonder, could we have got to where we are now within three years? You know, you, you, um, I, I think that I learned somebody, somebody actually came up with this thing of 100 days, you know, it's, you, you don't criticize what people are doing until you understand what it is they're doing. And I think that we had lots and lots of conversations in this organization around what would happen if we not if we cease to exist? Um, you know, what is our purpose? Who invited us to be in a country? I don't know if you've ever read a, an article written some years ago called the Missionary Position. You know, you know, um, and it's it's obviously 
it's a, it's talking about the missionaries and and what they call the secular missionaries, really the aid agencies that have been around for sixty years in in countries post independence. But it's also talking about who's on top, you know, and um, and and we we start asking ourselves questions, and I think it was it was a it was a dialogue. I think it was very important for me was to to move forward with consensus and to move. You know, when you when you came come to an organisation that is incredibly intelligent people who are really doing what they're doing, they're doing very well. I didn't come to an organisation that was failing. Um, I think I just felt that we we had greater potential than what we were engaged with, and our partners had even greater potential. So, um, how do you bring people with you? So, I think it was a lot of conversations and a lot of questioning about what are we leaving behind? You know, if we cease to exist, uh, and we had a partner, and we were unable to fund them, you know, they would they would dry up and die in a way, unless they had other sources of funding. When you started looking at at uh, countries. Um, at the aid agencies, you know, as a country moves through the DAC list, uh, I assume you're familiar with the the OECD countries. You know, these sort of columns, and from you know, from uh, very poor countries to middle-income countries to you know, so it's four four columns, and and the aid agencies tend to focus. I'm talking about the statutory funded aid agencies like DFID and and CEDA and um, USAID will fund. The the, the 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 poorest countries, but as a country moves away, you know, people might still be poor living in a in a country that now is 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 wealthier, and your partner's working in that country, and suddenly we are unable to fund them because there are no sources of funding anymore. And India's point is is a case in point. Um, uh, so the challenge to ourselves, well, now what are we going to do? What do we What do we do with this, you know? Because essentially we set up a relationship where we we are their source. We are essentially, they've now become dependent on us. How could this possibly be development? <laughs> yes. You know, um, you know people will criticize missionaries, but at least they left schools behind. You know, they'll criticize colonialism, but at least they left, you know, municipalities and railroads and, and whatever behind. I'm not, I'm not I'm not being so romantic as to think that they'll leave a, a whole range of other awful things behind that we, that we still deal with. But if, if the aid agencies have to start to question themselves, what are we leaving behind other than a retrenchment package? You know. So I often think that the institutions that we're building are squatting in the spaces of genuine institutions. And I think that the social enterprise sector, whilst it, there's a lot that we can criticize it for, you know, um, uh, I don't know sometimes whether these are actually focused on the poor or focused on CSR um, or focused on marketing, but um, but I think we have to ask ourselves what are we what is development what are we leaving behind that that, that doesn't need us and um, and I think that's the challenge we had and I think when intelligent people start to ask themselves that question as as one of my colleagues did, um, um, you know we we. Uh, it, we found it very difficult to answer, and so that convers- and I remember having um, uh, a relationship, having a, a conversation with. Um, we didn't feel, in a way, that um, uh, I suppose the, the, the uh, there is this belief that a lot of development in in the post-colonial times was in, in you know newly independent countries countries was very top down, and then through the eighties, particularly in the Particularly in the 90s, 
we began to become sensitive and started listening to grow, you know, to bottom up processes, you know, and I think that so top down was replaced with bottom up, and I think that we as Homes International were very much a bottom up organisation where we listened to what our partners had to say, you know, and, and some of the ideas that they had, and I think it was a very good thing, but it can become so entrenched that uh, you don't question anything, you know, you don't you don't question what your partners are doing. And we were in relationships with partners where the, our partnership had never been put down on paper as to what we were actually doing together. And uh, I remember an instance where um, I started asking that we put these partnerships down on paper. You know, why are we a British organization partnering with you, a Kenyan organization? What are we doing together that we couldn't do independently? And why did we make the choice, unlike other organizations, we didn't, as Homeless International, go and create Homeless International Kenya, Homeless International Uganda, Homeless International, whatever. We didn't flap our you know, flag in the wind in all these countries and seek to create a global brand. We worked with independent partners, which is a huge strength. But we didn't have partnership agreements. And uh, because what we were doing was really responding to this bottom-up, what people were telling us. And I think that still exists. We still are very good listeners as, as institutionally. But we didn't have anything on paper as to what our partnerships were about. And so I had to, um, uh, there was an occasion where all our partners had got together at a conference in Southern Africa. And they were asking us, asking me, because they were all together, it was a Skype call just like this. They were all connected. And, um, and uh, by the way, most of our part, uh, the, the organizations we support are women-led. Uh, that is just because women are better at building solidarity than, than men are. And so they tend to be women-led. It's not a rule. It's, it's just status quo. And... Uh, and so most of our partners on the other line were actually saying, Larry, why are you doing this? You know, after many, many years, we, you know, we've been, uh, we've been, uh, you know, we've been partners for many years. We've never needed to put it on paper, etc. And I said, well, reason is I could drop dead and, uh, and someone else comes along and just as I have, and I don't really know what the partnership's about. So I think it's important to write it down so that anybody else who picks up the partner, the partnership knows what we were trying to do in the beginning. Um, and I said, you know, all of you are uh, women, <laughs> uh, and I don't mean to get sexist about this, but I said, you know, if you were in a relationship with someone for 10 years, you know, wouldn't you ask where the relationship is going? Um, and so that's all I'm asking, you know. I don't know sometimes whether the relationship we have, or the partnership we have with organizations is a one-night stand, is it a dating relationship, is it an engagement or a marriage? Because I think that if we're going to build organizations on the ground that last, there has to be a relationship that's willing to go through thick and thin. So, you know, call it what you like, and I don't care which side of the, uh, you know, of, of that debate you, you, but you need to have some kind of contract that describes what you're trying to do and, and, and that allows both parties to invest a lot in that relationship. Um, so I'm not going to walk up and down, bust my gut and make a fool of myself, uh, in, in some cases, with shaking a tin, raising money for people with whom I'm got a one night stand, you know. So it's just uh, it's just uh, so so that relationship between our partners had to become a lot more solid, a lot more clear and the roadmap developed for that. And that was a change in our organization as well, is that you had to start becoming a lot more clearer as to what the blueprint was or what is the what is the game plan as to how this organization is going to be built. And once that in place, how do we do that how do we make that that building process a shorter process each time? Uh, oldest partner we have is 25 years. Uh, 
you know. You know, it, they got to, I suppose, a level of sustainability about seven, seven years ago. Um, uh, uh, how do you do something that took you 20 years? How do you do that in three or five? <laughs> That's very, yeah. very interesting. I mean, just changing gear slightly. Yeah. I mean, would you say that, I mean, is it too simplistic to say the organization has gone from being a charity to a social enterprise? We are a social, but we still retain the, uh, we, 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 and this is uh, very important if some people are going to listen to this out there, um, it's, we are still the same organization. You know, our, our mission is not our method. You know? um, so we, our method is not our mission. So um, for us, uh, we, we're a social enterprise. We have an enterprising approach uh, to building organizations. Um, yes, the shift was. But we haven't lost the fact that there is... Uh, advocacy challenges, there are huge injustices. Um, so we still have a part of our organization that still focuses on that. Um, it hasn't diminished. It's just that the rest of the organization has grown much bigger than that part. Um, and and it, you could say it's the state of, uh, you know, as the wind blew as a result of the, the finance and financial, global cr- financial crisis, you know, suddenly uh, people's sentiments um, change color. You know, and, uh, and and so social enterprise uh, is some you know people of you know uh, I, I wouldn't want to say it's a, a sort of a compassion uh, index or anything like that, but I think that people are looking a little bit more uh, carefully at what is happening with the money and 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 and, and how it's being deployed and um, how are people becoming you know independent and how is this going to end and. And I think that those kind of questions are asked now, weren't asked in the heady days of, um, you know, uh, up till 20, 2007, you know. So, um, so you know, a limitation on, on resources makes us think more strategically. So we, we were really doing it, but I do think that, you know, we, the, wind, the wind is blown and we happen to be, we happen to have our sail up and catch it. Right, right. And again, just trying to really distill this, because it's very interesting. What would you say are a few of the key characteristics of this more enterprising approach in an organizational form? It's very important for us to know why we're doing what we're doing, why we exist. You know, what is the problem that we're trying to change? So obviously that's, you know, it depends on where you start. But so assuming you've identified a problem in the world that is not being addressed, what is the process that is going to change it? Um, and I tend to think ecosystemically, so one has to sort of understand it, it, it like a, a doctor would do. You know, if, if this is the, if, if my foot is sore, what is causing the, the pain? Um, and then actually understand the anatomy to actually fix up that pain. So um, I, I described earlier that you know, so so it's important for us to find out what is the the dysfunction, or the as some people call it, the market failure, or you know, what is that dysfunction you're trying to change and what is it ecosystemically so it's not um, uh, so what I see a lot of and I, I see even at Skoll and I don't mind being public about it is a lot of silver bullets um, and uh, so you might solve one problem and create another you know? and um, so I think it's very important to understand the ecosystem so if, you, if, you, if you're in the medical sphere and you're dealing with HIV, as as people have, 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 have that have, are in that you know they understand the entire ecosystem, how it causes, etc., etc., how it's spread, etc. Um, 
and I think that in, in you know other other uh, 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 sectors or subsectors need to be understood the same way. So and I think it's very important to understand that sector, and then it's important for us to understand where we fit in that sector and and how we add value to that, and then how. Uh, is there any and then to choose? You obviously you need if if you think of it ecosystemically or as a hybrid value chain or as a, a linear value chain, who are the who are the what are the components in that value chain? And then do they understand the whole or do they understand just parts? Um, and I think that if you can, and I think for me is 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 when everybody begins to understand where they fit in that chain and understand how they add value to it. Um, or not adding value to it, and then how that chain or that loop in our case creates accountability as to whether you're doing your, your bit effectively or not effectively, um, then as an organization you, you start to know how you can invest, how where you invest, uh, you stop becoming a chicken without a head, you know, you, you start knowing, okay, this, if, this is what we've got to do, these are the competencies we've got to develop whether we like it or not, and um, these are the languages we have to acquire, and I use that metaphorically. Uh, in our case, we've had to learn finance language. The banks aren't going to come to us. We've got to go to the banks. You know, uh, I often have this, this uh, you know, a lot of people with an, um, an, an advocacy bent who, who are kind of saying, well, the finance sector needs to understand what we're doing. And you kind of say, well, you're speaking to me in English, and I know that's not your first language. Why did you learn English? Well, if you don't learn English, there's no way you're going to get funded, because you because the funding comes out of relationships, it comes out of submitting grants. If you can't do that in English, you don't get the grants. It's a so if you want to be helpful to a whole bunch of people who don't speak English, learn English, because it's going to get people money. You know, so 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 and and we're faced with the same thing, having to learn different languages. And um, so what did I say? I said uh, understanding the eco, knowing the ecosystem knowing our role in the ecosystem and then becoming bloody good at what we do and better than everyone else. And um, um, and I think in the end, you know, all of us want to, I didn't join, you know, I don't, I don't have, I don't see, I think uh, in some ways um, the social enterprise or uh, working for the charities is, is, is like a new way of, like Victorian virtues, it's like a way of acquiring being virtuous, you know, you sit next to someone on a plane, you tell them you work with people who in slum, working in slums, and they say, oh, that's a wonderful job, and you get this warm, feel this warm glow coming across you, because you're doing this wonderful work, you know, and I think a lot of people are attracted to that, and I don't mind actually not earning a banker's salary to actually earn, to do this kind of work, just because of that warm glow, but I think that, um, um, and I think that social enterprise, in some ways, is offering people the same warm glow without an ability to make money at the same time. But uh, someone else can, you know, someone else can evaluate that. But at an organisational level, you're looking at what you're doing and saying, is this organisation providing something people are willing to pay for? And it's, and 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 somehow, when they pay for it, it has a value. When they don't pay for it, it doesn't have a value. I think you've probably heard that many times. But um, and they're willing to, and then if you can scale it up, that even yourself, you can be paid by doing this work, you know. Um, and, and, and I think that, um, uh, I don't think that that, that uh, you can make this work for everyone. I think there's some people, in, on the, you know, people that are orphaned or people who are, are um, 
aged, just unable to work. You know, you can't sort of uh, say this is going to work university, but but there are billions in the world that are able to pay for something. And so if you're able to find um, a way of attending to their need in a way that it, it can be provided sustainably, I think that I think that enterprise challenges you more to think about the sustainability aspect than than aid would because you can find a theoretical way you can do an evaluative thing which you know you can do in studies which show improvement but 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 but, but don't don't require the same kind of sharpening of thinking and then at a macro level of looking at your life i think that you you want to leave behind i mean you, you've chosen to join uh, a, a sector where you, this is not a way of becoming rich uh, so so if you're going to do this work and you want to look back at your life you want to actually know that you actually did something that actually did work i mean i would like to look at organizations that are continuing to be effective that will be effective by, you know beyond me dying you know and and uh that that is very important to me if i'm mucking about playing aid and, and trying to impress my friends with uh trumped up figures um uh and playing the, that kind of game well that's just a game I, you know it's i'd rather go back to the private sector and and, and money i don't want to play that game i think that's from a personal point of view i think that's the shift in the organization we we, we don't exist here to play some game um even people refer to the aid industry why did it become an industry? You know, why is it an industry? You know, it's a right. Uh, and now, now the industry is actually focused on its own survival. You've suggested some caveats, and that others may may you know that there are questions and some nuanced thinking that's required about social enterprise. Trying to just get a sense of looking at the charities sector in general. To what extent do you think over the next five seven years more charities are going to be going down this route, or more of the kind of services that are currently put it this way, more of the the beneficiaries will be delivered services through more social enterprise type organisations. If that makes sense, I think I think it's I think that that's already happening. I mean, I, I'm part of a group of organizations who, uh, it was interesting, I was joking with a couple of them the other day, because for the first time, we're actually going to be talking about what we're doing, and actually, uh, it's a small group of organizations, and uh, and two other organizations happen to be following the similar route, but all of us come from a completely different background. You know, we, we would never, this would have been heresy. Um and we've talked about it as a coming out session, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, uh, and 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 it is because I think a lot of I think it's becoming easier to talk about it, and even our partners rejected this notion, and many of them are actually seeing the fruit of others and and the the fact of freedom that has come with organisations that are more are financially more self reliant, and uh, and and be, and and. Um, so they're no longer so. So for me, the I think more organisations are going to go this way. I do see problems. Um, I mean, we we get asked those all the time. My own board asks it all the time. So you know, how are you going to ensure that this doesn't run away and just become business? And 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 how are you going to prevent exploitation? I think these are very very important governance questions. And uh, uh, and and uh, actually, um, the people at at VPF will tell you that. Um, 
know, this is the role that I think that VPF and, and uh, similar um, hubs can play in uh, what do we put in place? You know, at the moment in the UK, we're not regulated. As, as we're, we're not a charity. I mean, in, in the, sadly, the Charity Commission in this country doesn't distinguish between the local daffodil society and the international NGO. You know, it's working in multi-countries. It's just, it's the same rules that apply for governance. And, uh, and, and yet, this is going to be required tremendous governance. We do have examples. You know, the social housing sector has, has, uh, uh, has the HCA. It has its own regulatory body. It's both a charity, but it's also a business. And, uh, and I think this is going to be the, so for me, pointing forward, I don't want to get too euphoric about it. Uh, I think that it's solving some problems and creating new ones. And the new ones are going to be, how do you hire somebody? I mean, that's, that's, that's one of our challenges. How do we hire somebody that thinks like an entrepreneur, that is hugely ambitious, but unselfish about it? It's not going to be for themselves. They're not going to personally benefit by it. Where do you find those kinds of people? You know, um, so not somebody who's sitting there, you know, sort of thinking that basically their role is to is to feel immensely compassionate uh, the whole time and feels that all they need to do is have the right quotient of compassion. But actually, somebody who actually is an, is an entrepreneur that's going to go out and do something, but they're not personally going. To, there's not going to be a direct relationship between how hard they work and how much they and what their bank balance looks like. So. Um, I don't know if that's what you want, but for me, um, um, I still think we're in the middle of it, all of it. That's why I don't feel like, I feel quite, that talking about these huge successes, I still think that there are, um, every corner we turn, every time the, the, the horizon changes, we kind of see a whole new landscape in front of us, which is filled both with opportunities and new challenges. So. Um, governance for us as an organization has become tremendously important and I'm fortunate to have a board chair who that actually really understands it, understands that we, we're trying to balance poor, the poor who are becoming poorer around the world and, and, and mechanisms that are trying to use the best of business you know, and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and bridging these two and, and finding ourselves often between uh, um, having to develop because we're dealing with it, you know. But the future is, you know, in the future, our organisation will be led by different people. You know, how do those values then? Then uh, uh, a lot of the management that takes place, a lot of the integrity of our organisations, based based on individuals having the right people. You know, HR processes don't distill these kind of right values. These values are born out by by watching people and how you know whether what they say is what they do. Um, so, you know, how do you, uh, so for us, it's finding, you know, the, 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 the finding the right, uh, trying to embed certain things in our DNA, the way we do it, trying to recruit the right people that, uh, they don't send us, you know, we might've come from a, a charity, sort of a very much a charity sector now moving toward an enterprise sector that we don't get people that are so hung up on building markets that they forget about who they're trying to serve and in, in the end who that, who that market is, you know. So upward creep is, is always the challenge. Uh, it's easier to sort out, it's easier to build golf course estates and build housing for expats in Tanzania than it is for the poor. So. Right. Yeah. 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 Ye
<laughs> What's certainly clear is that you're it's a pioneering you say you're on this journey and it's a new journey seems like the the whole social entrepreneurial social enterprise rubric I suppose seems to be quite a broad church and there seems to be different models evolving and people using trying to find ways to you know introduce this more innovative more energetic more entrepreneurial but not losing the key values that are there as well and and the the people that are being looked after and it it's it's ongoing isn't it and it's uh, but it's very inspiring to hear you know of your journey clearly there are lots of questions but it's still in early early days in the whole i mean yes yeah, so i think in know. the uk too i mean i don't know how many you know i previously worked with a, with an american organization so in it was often you know they have many many little hubs and places that that would talk in this particular that would just it's it's almost in their DNA. Yeah. Whereas here in the UK, there are not many spaces and um, where these kinds of um, uh, things can be, you know, these kind of challenges can be discussed, uh, so that we can we can develop practice that we can actually build new benchmarks or new uh, checklists for ourselves. Um, I would say, give a plug for VPF is. They, in some way, they very, they were very important in, in in providing the legitimacy that I was seeking to pursue. This, you know, it was at some stage the only people I could talk to about what we needed or trying to do was uh, initially Leonora Fitzgibbons, who was who was leading the, the VPF uh, at that stage, and then um, Mark Fisher and a number of board members, um, um, and. Uh, uh, and and it's people that have followed from that. I don't want to, I, 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 I shouldn't have mentioned names because <laughs> uh, I'm going to. That is not coming to mind that quickly. Yes. But, um, but they provided a kind of a. This is all right, Larry. This is no, what you're doing is right. And actually came and met with our staff at one stage. Really challenged them. Um, and so we're really helpful in 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 in, in this kind of what I call changing one's religion yeah i'm certainly going to talk to them or try and talk to them at some stage oh, i was thinking i had this idea in my head of something called the ambidextrous organization <laughs> whether well, it's some kind of sense of trying to get the idea of trying to bring together not necessarily the best i, I don't like to try to you know, optimize yeah. but you know trying to bring together key elements of both <laughs> or you know yeah. different things yeah. but yeah it's well, sometimes you know. there's a bipolar organization <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and sometimes yeah and sometimes it's a double speak organization yeah. because if you're talking to audiences that have not made yes. that transition themselves you've got to be very very careful as to what language you use um so it's a bit like uh you know talking in front of a different religious audience you know you can't use certain language you've just got to be you've got you've got to be astute um and it's not that you actually are being uh, uh, lacking integrity and and, and uh, you know and, uh, uh, and 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 being situation you know based you know changing your ethics day to day. It's not. It's just that you've got to you've got to express those in in, in, in different language languages. And in the UK, I feel that very much there are these are two different worlds that are have yet not yet merged. We find ourselves sort of in the space in between and um, and seeking out other organizations uh, to share this journey with. Uh, VPF it helps 
Um, um, but it's but it can be a lonely it can, it can be very lonely for the person who's leading that change um, uh, because at times you feel that you've lost your soul you sold to the devil that kind of thing you know yes the, 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 you know? the prophet word as soon as <laughs> that idea because you lose yeah. you lose friends I've, I wouldn't say I've burnt bridges but I think people see our me and see the organization in a completely different way uh, some of them and uh, you win a lot more friends than you lose but the thing is uh, the losing friends that are, are is a, is a is, is is sore nevertheless and uh, and and so this it's you know I use the analogy of coming out it is a coming out kind of thing and it's not easy just to you find you know when you go to school you believe yourself into be a, in a different world it is a different world there's so many American accents there but it's it's a little bubble you know it's a it's it's a little Truman show it's not the real thing there isn't really at the moment uh, at the moment you think people have actually moved in one direction. They're holding you accountable to the criteria of the old. <laughs> oh God! Yes. So, that... so you're still having to produce certain figures that politicians want to read. Yes. Despite, despite the, despite the return on investment, you know, um, you've created a tenfold increase in the personal wealth of all the people you're working with, um, and you can show that financially. You can show that in order to validate that, but that doesn't count against how many numbers of people. You know, how many widgets you've, you, uh, you know, how many boxes you've ticked because an agency basically has these criteria. This is what's important for now. So it's a, it's a, as I say, you say ambidextrous. I think that's, a, that is better. I think you just have to learn to use both arms. Yeah, <laughs> it's better. You have to learn to be multilingual and you have to be multilingual inside your organization so that you don't lose people along the way. Um, that's, yeah, I still say to our organization, we are still doing the same mission. Our mission has not changed. Yeah. In fact, in fact, we feel more confident that we're meeting the objects of our mission now than we did before. And that's why we know we're doing the right thing. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it's been fascinating and I haven't looked intensively around, but I mean, I, I haven't really seen much discussion about this kind of thing. Cause I just think it's a very interesting journey and a brave journey as well. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, it's you're, you're in London. I mean, this, yes. is, this, is, this is the cauldron of, of, of it. I mean, it's not like this in other parts of the world. No. You know, Americans don't. Don't yeah. have to face these things. No one actually yeah. is concerned with it. No, they, and they just set things up from de novo, new new things out of the blue, yeah, and they, they don't need to. Like LLCs and benefit corporations. And yeah, and things here, it's like yeah. what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you either get money, private sector. Yeah, they're B corps, and, and what was this? Yeah. Somebody I was interviewing the other day had a quite nice one, not just for profit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just kind of they're hybrid. They're kind of. Uh, but you know, fertile area clearly, and it's good to you know the, being able to think out loud as well. I think so. I feel privileged to be part of what you're doing, and and, and I think that uh, pioneers like you that are building these space, particularly in the UK, you're the first to market. I don't know of anybody else doing this, so yes, good for you. Good for you. Go for it. <laughs> well, thank you, and I wish you the very best with with okay. with your work, Great. and we'll Cheers be in touch you. again. Okay, Fogel. Cheers, guys. Cheers, then. Yeah, bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.